1: I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Here's what historic documentation confirms is how most Americans, black and white, regarded the civil rights movement. It was, as political scientist Jean Theo Harris describes, unpopular and disruptive during its time. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was not broadly respected and admired, and the civil rights organizers were not thought of as heroic. Later, when the story was told in her daughter's school books, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Diane McWhorter was appalled by how little the history resembled the reality. She wrote a children's book to set the record straight. Both are concerned about an increased effort to cherry-pick certain aspects of this history, to dismiss some of the ugly truths, and to misconstrue the details of the nation's race and social justice history. Jean Theoharis is the Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. She has authored or co-authored 11 books, including the award-winning The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Her latest book is A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. Diane McWhorter won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction for her book, Carry Me Home, Birmingham, Alabama, The Climactic Battle of the Civil Rights Revolution. A longtime contributor to The New York Times, she is also the author of the 2004 children's book, A Dream of Freedom, The Civil Rights Movement from 1954 to 1965. And they both join me remotely now. Welcome to Under the Radar. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I'm glad to have both of you. I'm going to start with you, Jean. The Misuses and Abuses of Civil Rights History is the second part of the description of the title of your book. And you've been alarmed by what you've been witnessing as the taking of what is documented, what is known to be true, and now either twisted or distorted because people are uncomfortable with what the history is, can you talk about
2: that? Absolutely. Um, So I think we've gotten very comfortable with sort of what I call a fable of the civil rights movement, right? Which is we had this long ago problem in the South and then courageous black people with the help of Northern white people shone a light on it, and then it was changed and fixed, right? And, And Dr. King was the leader and Rosa Parks was the originator. It's a story with good guys and bad guys and a happy ending. Um, And it erases and distorts, as you mentioned, a lot. Uh, It erases that, in fact, the Civil Rights Movement was not just in the South, but across the country. It erases the fact that many Northern liberals who supported the Southern Civil Rights Movement didn't necessarily support movements in their own backyard. It often leaves out the crucial role that young people played. And I think one of the most disturbing things lately is the ways that this fable of the civil rights movement is weaponized against present-day movements like Black Lives Matter. So we've seen a lot of people criticizing Black Lives Matter. You're not doing it right. You should be more like Dr. King, when in fact, many of the same criticisms of Black Lives Matter, too disruptive, taking on too many issues, were criticisms waged at the civil rights movement and Dr. King himself. mm <laughs>
1: Dan McWhorter, first of all, you wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book about a seminal event in the civil rights movement. And then you saw what your daughters were being taught in school, and you were quite appalled by that. Um, why is it important to pay attention to the misuse and abuse of this history, as as Jean Theo Harris has put it?
0: Well... I, the, the thing that, that uh, got me to, to write the children's book was a scholastic newsletter that my daughter brought home in second grade uh, for the King holiday, which described Martin Luther King as someone who taught people how to resolve their differences without fighting and refer to segregationists as, as people who disagreed with him. And so I was sort of appalled by the, you know, human resourceification of King. I, and, I, and I volunteered to go into her class on Martin Luther King Day to talk about what segregation really was and everything. But then I did find that it was really difficult because my daughter started learning about King in nursery school because of the holiday, the federal holiday. And that's, that's sort of why this narrative that Jean just described, you know, Rosa Parks' hands off to Martin Luther King uh, it's so baked in because that's sort of all their little psyches could handle initially, right? And I, I remember going in and teaching um, the class and really, you know, my, my daughters uh, who were half Jewish, I thought, I started wondering, like, what if some well-meaning mom came in and decided that she wanted to tell them about the the Holocaust, Right. Because that, you know, because that's sort of our soft version of that in a way. Right. And so I I don't want to minimize how tricky this is when when you're when you're exposing very tender brains to this. So that's why it needs to be sussed out.
1: But you're not saying that it should not be taught. And to both of you, I'll start with you, Diane, just picking up from what you said about teaching in your daughter's school, just the teaching of the history has become a political issue despite Martin Luther King Jr. Day that we celebrate annually. There are now laws, rules, and all kinds of volatile pushback against the actual describing and talking about what happened. How do you think this tumultuous history became the center of this growing national dispute?
0: There, you know, there's always something that politicians on the right will will glom onto whether it's like gun control or something to popularize a, a, a cause to win elections basically so Crt as it's now called is 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 certainly that and
1: critical race theory for people who are not uh critical race theory yes go ahead
0: critical race theory so all these so you're referring to all the laws that are being passed in legislatures that they basically inhibit, you know, teachers from teaching slavery, for example. There are two issues to discuss here. The one is just sort of the purely political phenomenon, but then there is, I think that the left also needs to look at what its response to, and mm-hmm. um, and, and the way that, that we too, the left too, suppresses certain kinds of speech and argument. So even though you can sort of put the the, this legislation that is definitely stipulate that that's bad. It's it's suppressing free speech. It's it's a form of indoctrination. I I think that we also need to examine whether it is a reaction to something real.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to point out once again, critical race theory is not taught in K through twelve schools. Despite however many laws are passed, it's not taught. It's not taught. It's not taught. Saying it again. Sometimes maybe in colleges. But it really resides in law schools as a discussion, just for the record. So there is a pushback, Gene Theore Harris, um, that's gone beyond this political aspect of it into, as Diane said, even talking about you know, slavery. But certainly all of the details that we would know in a more modern way from the modern civil rights movement of what race history is really about in the U.S. So who benefits from the fabulization, as you have put it, of this history?
2: Kelly, I think you're getting at this, right? That this is not about CRT. This is about kind of, we're now seeing more teaching about structural racism, about the ways that racism pervades, you know, the economic and political and social institutions of this country from its founding, from before its founding. You know, and then I think when we start to talk about the civil rights movement, there's the fable, right, that everybody likes because it's it's in some sense an American exceptionalist tale, right? Which is that injustice in America, you shine a light and that injustice goes away. And that's why everybody, if we think about when the statue of Rosa Parks goes up in the Capitol, right? It's a bipartisan extravaganza, right? John Boehner's there, Mitch McConnell's there, President Obama's there, Nancy Pelosi's there, right? It's this incredible bipartisan event because the fable is a fable of American progress and it helps take the attention away from enduring social and racial inequality and what the historical roots of that are Um, and so I think part of why the civil rights movement has taken on kind of this really central role in the ways that the United States talks about itself and and sees itself and celebrates itself is because of the ways that it seems like we've gotten past our problems, past our history and therefore I think the anti-crt backlash really is about conversations that say not so fast actually we need to talk you know more broadly, more substantively both about this long history of racial inequality and the ways that that it endures today
0: Kelly, okay, uh, can I jump in here? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think the reason the CRT stuff is coming up now is because we vividly realize that this really is not history. I mean, it's, 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 it's going on now. I know that when I was asked to give a, my first talk after Donald Trump was elected president, I said, sure. And I looked back through all my speeches and they, they were not applicable un- under Trump because the position that they started from was that what I was talking about was history. And, you know, and it was history that we that we are able to look back on as this, you know, form of mass social insanity that the country went through. And then, you know, as Jean said, then we somebody shined a light on it and we came out of it. And, and now we saw it being kind of reenacted in real time. So I think part of the the sort of brittleness now of this of this pushback against it is because it is plain that this history has not gone away, that it's it's sort of being. Uh, you know, reenacted as we live. Um,
1: Jean, I would like you to read from your book, which I think underscores what we've been talking
2: about on page 25. Okay. More significantly, these mishistories of the civil rights movement impoverished people fighting for social justice today by separating them from the perspectives and experiences of a long line of courageous freedom fighters. 60 years ago, Rosa Parks drew solace and sustenance from the long history of black resistance before her time, placing her action in the Montgomery boycott in the continuum of black protest. Her speech notes during the boycott read, reading history of others, Christmas addicts through all wars, Richard Allen, Dr. Adam Clayton Powell, senior and junior, women, Phyllis Wheatley, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Mary McLeod Bethune." For Parks, the ability to keep going to know that the struggle for justice was possible amid all the setbacks they encountered was partly possible through reading and referencing the long Black struggle before her. By denying a new generation their place in that lineage, a key form of sustenance is taken away.
1: Well, as it happens, um, Diane, when you wrote your book for young people... You, of course, one of the places you went right at, one of the scenarios you, you went right at was the Montgomery bus boycott. So I'd love you as a follow up to Jean Theo is reading. And by the way, that's from her book, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Misuses and Abuses of Civil Rights History. From your book, A Dream of Freedom, the Civil Rights Movement, Diane, would you read page 40 of the Montgomery bus boycott?
0: OK, sure. It was dark by 530 p.m. on December 1st, 1955. The Christmas lights had been turned on in Montgomery, the capital of Alabama. A 42-year-old black seamstress left her $23 a week tailoring job at a downtown department store. She boarded a bus for home. After a few stops, the bus was full. A white man was left standing. According to Montgomery's segregation laws, the very front of the bus was reserved for whites and blacks went to the back. The middle seats were a no-man's land filled on a first-come basis, used by blacks or whites as long as the, quote, color line was observed. But in practice, the drivers ordered blacks to give up their seats to any white person. So on this Thursday in December, the bus driver, J. Fred Blake, told the first row of of African-Americans to get up so that the white man could sit. Three passengers obeyed. The fourth sitting with them, the seamstress defiantly slid over to the window and refused to go to the back of the bus. The black struggle for freedom had found the route into its future. The seamstress was Rosa Parks. In the legends that grew up around her, she became she came to be seen as a sweet, simple woman with tiger feet who decided one day that she would not be moved. But Parks had been in training for this moment all her life. And the tired she felt was the kind of fatigue of the soul that has built for decades and finally sets off a revolution. That's Diane
1: McWhorter reading from her young people's book, A Dream of Freedom, The Civil Rights Movement. So what you've both demonstrated in your books again is the broader, expansive story, you know, has a lot that we don't know, that a lot of Americans don't know. I mean, I learned a lot from your book, Gene. For example, one thing that stunned me is that at the uh, MLK Memorial in Washington, D.C., here is a monument to the man who led the modern civil rights movement, which was about race and social justice, and none of the quotes refer to that. None. I've been there. It didn't even occur to me. That's... How I guess I it's ingrained in me. I, I I just didn't even notice
2: it, which is really appalling for me to think I mean, I think it's it's the way that he becomes just about peace. and and this is getting back to what Diane was saying, um this this kind of distortion we see where it's like, you know, King was was a peaceful guy who helped us re- like resolve our differences, right? and And so a lot of the quotes, even, even ones that are from him later in life, managed to, they don't use the word segregation, right? They don't speak race because again, this is about, this is a kind of coming together narrative. It also, I think one of the things about the King Memorial is is the opportunity it could have presented. if you If you go, there's always school, Well, I mean, I don't know in the pandemic, but before the pandemic, you know, school groups and people flock to it. And this is true of Rosa Parks' statue in the Capitol. And yet the histories we get of both of them are so deeply distorted and narrow. And and so, what if we actually learned how much Dr. King spoke out around police brutality, around Northern inequality? What if we actually learned that Rosa Parks spends the second half of her life fighting the racism outside of the South in Detroit? Uh, What if we actually learned? That Dr. King went to grad school in the North and didn't find it the promised land, and in fact, you know, saw the kind of racism of Boston and had trouble finding housing when he moves to Boston as a grad student. What if we learn those things and how that would shape then how we see the present?
1: Well, because of this um, CRT controversy, critical race theory, a lot of students obviously are caught in the middle, and I thought it would help people understand how much they're caught in the middle because. They don't know the history. and They are hoping to learn it. So here are some high school students across the country responding to the critical race theory controversy in schools.
0: I heard this really good quote and it's, if kids are old enough to experience racism, then they're old enough to learn about it. And I think that's really true.
2: I do understand that many parents don't want their children learning about race at such a young age, but I beg to differ in that sense. We learn about race every day when we're the only colored kid in our classrooms or when we're learning about slavery and all the heads turn to us. So one way or another, one group of students will learn about race before another. So we believe that it would be equitable if all students learned about race in the same context so we can work together on it to improve our future.
1: And in fact, Jean, uh, what you've learned is that people are actually, as you say, hungry to understand the fullness of really what happened, as opposed to to continue to be taught the fairy tales or the fable, as you put it.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I teach college, but because of the Rosa Parks book and and I actually published uh, a young adult version of the Rosa Parks book last year with Brandy Colbert. Because I think young people, middle school, high school, college, and and beyond, want a history that doesn't feel like it's, you know, the kind of two-dimensional poster version. You know, like, I think we turn Black history into a series of posters during February, when, in fact, it's so much richer. And the reason um, I call my book a more beautiful and terrible history, it's from a quote by James Baldwin. It's from an incredible piece called The Talk to Teachers, if people haven't read it. Um, I would recommend it. And he and Baldwin writes, uh, American history is longer, larger, more beautiful, more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. And I think that's true that in some sense, it's more inspiring when you actually look at Rosa Parks's more than six decades of freedom fighting. It's more inspiring when you see Dr. King being arrested almost 30 times across his life, the kinds of issues he's taking on from housing segregation, in LA, to school segregation in New York, to public accommodations in Birmingham, to jobs, to the war, to police brutality, to the ways that the courts deny Black people justice, right? The fullness of what Dr. King's vision for the United States actually was, right? I think that's much, it's much more interesting, it's much more inspiring, and it is much more sobering, right? Which I think is partly why we see this backlash.
1: So, Diane, um, not only did you write about the civil rights, well, have you written about this, the civil rights movement, both for children and adults, but your Pulitzer Prize-winning book was really included your own life in Birmingham growing up during the seminal events of the civil rights movement in Birmingham. So as a white woman, you've both lived through this and now live to write about the history itself, the full history what do you think now is as, as you see people trying to make this something that it's not, and sometimes even use Reverend King's words or other civil rights leaders' words in support of the fables, as Jean Theo Harris would say? How alarmed are you about where we are in the teaching of this history or not teaching of it?
0: I I have to say that I always joke that my it took me longer to write my book than Dr. King's career lasted. So then I found myself after about ten years after it came out, I started feeling like the fact checker in chief because the the desire to go back to the to the mythology of the and this and by the way this is this is all sort of out the window since Trump. But the the mythology of what a friend might call the interracial handshake that everybody we were all really on the same side the whole time. I, I you know I've come I've come to the conclusion about our country that we that we do change, but I don't know that we learn anything. So. For example, in Birmingham, when they were gearing up to celebrate the 50th anniversary of '63, which you know it was it was the Birmingham demonstrations with the fire hoses and police dogs that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which abolished legal segregation. So Birmingham was gearing up to commemorate that and and celebrate and look what you sort of you know look how far we've come and look what we accomplished. And at the very same time, the state was passing the anti-immigrant law you know, and sort of reinventing Jim Crow as Juan Crow. And it was, it was, and so, you know, I just looked at that thinking, so in 50 years are we going to be celebrating how we overcame that, you know? Um, and and that's when I realized we make adjustments usually in order to preserve power structures the way they are. And then when the same problem comes down the road in the slightly different guise, we don't recognize it. We just, you know, go through the same process. So it's it's been very depressing um to me to to live through this i mean I, I mean not to not as depressing for me as the people who are still being you know shot by policemen and stuff but it's sobering but i think that part of the problem is that we and now that sort of our our very democracy is kind of on the brink and it was the civil rights movement that kept forcing the country to live up to its words you know in in the constitution so the fact that we now seem to be willing to just chuck that is partly a, because of the education that we got that we, we that we weren't taught that that democracy is difficult we sentimentalize everything so we thought like you know gee why can't we inv- invade a country and and make them hold free and fair elections they're like what's the problem you know so anyway so I think that, as as Malcolm X said, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost now of of all this, for all this history that we haven't really grappled with.
1: I would ask each of you um, one question, and this is not to, to get a sentimental answer. But what do you say to people about how to push back against this for those people who, A, want to know the history and B, know the history and are seeing it distorted, misused and abused, as you said, Jean.
2: I mean, I think one of the things that you learn from Rosa Parks's actual life of freedom fighting, right, which begins two decades before her bus stand, continues for 40 years after, is how much and how many times they try things, right? They are working on issues of criminal justice in in those decades before the bus stand. They're working on issues of desegregation. They're working on voting rights, right? over and over, and she talks about how it was hard to keep going when our efforts seemed in vain, and yet she keeps going. So to me, I think one of the lessons that I draw from Rosa Parks, right, is that persistence, that one of the most dangerous aspects of the myth, this idea that it's accidental, that you just stumble into history, that it just changes overnight, is the fact that part of Rosa Parks's genius and her courage is the courage to keep doing things over and over and over and that you don't know the moment until you're well past it, right? Because she has no sense that night that deciding not to move, right? She talks about her her arrest being annoying. And in part, you can hear in that because she's planning a workshop for her NAACP Youth Council that weekend. And now she's gotten herself arrested. So she has no sense that this is gonna trigger what we now know it does trigger, right? But you just keep doing things. And so that I think is one of my messages is that what this history shows us is how long and how hard people pushed, but that there are moments when things shift, when history
0: does change. Diane, what would you say? My favorite quote from Philip Randolph, who was the organizer of the of the March on Washington, he said, power is the active principle of only the organized masses, the masses united for a definite purpose. And I would say for um, the for activists to keep that principle in mind we tend to be focused on symbolic changes like language or monuments and while those are important they're not essential they don't lead to structural change. and one of the reasons they are so we we, we do get focused on them is because they, they they're relatively easy to change you know compared compared to the sort of structure of capitalism that leaves a large segment of the population out, and I would just say to people, look at the number of ads that that feature interracial couples, or upper middle class Black people. That's the symbolism that the that the corporations are participating in to feel like they're doing their their bit for racial justice. It changes nothing, you know. Well, I thank you both for joining
1: me in this conversation. Thank, thank you, Kelly. Jean Theo Harris is the distinguished professor of political science at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. She is the author of the New York Times best-selling biography, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Her latest book is A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. Diane McWhorter is the author of the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for her book, Carry Me Home, Birmingham, Alabama, The Climactic Battle of the Civil Rights Revolution and is also the author of The Young Adult History of the Civil Rights Movement in 2004, A Dream of Freedom, the Civil Rights Movement from 1954 to 1965. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, Produced by Hannah Jubilee and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.